0: Why don't we go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. First of all, you need to congratulate yourself for coming to Sunday School today. It is July 4th and it's 100 degrees outside. So, that's right. This is the dedicated crew right here, for sure. Uh, So, um, Pete and Denise finished their Sunday School on the book, Crazy Busy last weekend, so now we're going to talk about the parables for a few weeks. And um, I'm going to be uh, teaching uh, most of the time, and then Errol is going to teach in two weeks. He's going to talk about the uh, prodigal son. So um, what is a parable? What do y'all think a parable is? What is a parable? It's a story right? Okay, that's a great definition. It's a story. Um, What else about a parable? It's an earthly story with a heavenly message. message. That's a good definition of a parable. Anybody else? What's the difference between a parable and, say, um, the Narnia books? The Narnia books. What's the difference between a parable and like the Chronicles of Narnia? Fewer pages, right? So the main difference is Narnia. In Narnia, you have things like talking animals. It's not in the real world. Some of it's in the real world, some of it's in a made up world. What's the difference between a parable from the Bible and like Pilgrim's Progress? They both, so, so they both, they have similarities, right? The, the parable of the sower is not actually about a farmer, right? But there's a difference. In Pilgrim's Progress, the characters, it's much more direct. Like everything in Pilgrim's Progress is allegorical. I think the main character's name is Christian, right? So the bunch of characters have names like that. There's no confusion about what he's talking about. So a parable certainly is allegorical, but not necessarily every detail. You can kind of run into problems. If you, if you try to look at every detail in a parable and assign some kind of meaning to every single detail, you can uh, get off track. So a parable is a story in the real world, right, that uh, we can take a couple of fundamental truths from. So it is a real life story from which a few basic truths are drawn. So it's not in a, you know, Jesus did not say, to make up stories about, you know, talking animals, and he didn't say things as directly, necessarily, as Pilgrim's Progress, but he told stories, and um, they had a meaning other than the, the kind of obvious meaning of the story. Like I said, the parable of the Sower is not about farming. <clears throat> and the sower represents God, right? And The prodigal son represents a sinner who is saved by grace, the older brother a sinner saved by grace, so uh, those things uh, apply to parables. So a real life story from which a few basic truths are drawn. So before we start talking about the parables, today we're just going to talk about, this is just going to be an introduction, specific parables. Why do you think human beings tell stories? One of the most common things we've ever done for thousands and thousands and thousands of years is tell stories. Why do we tell stories? It's interesting, that is one reason for sure. Why else do we tell stories? It makes us relate. relate. That's right. It takes a principle, makes it relate to your actual life because you tell a story in the context of whatever your life is. Anybody else? Say that. God tells stories, so we tell stories, right? It says something about if we're made God's image, and it's so natural for us to tell stories, then it makes sense uh, that God tells stories, so we tell stories. And actually, you could say the whole existence of humanity is one big story that's playing out. That's right. That's it. So Mr. Sam is saying he would tell stories to his kids to teach them a lesson. Uh, maybe if there's something they need to be afraid of or need to be wary of. That's a perfect example. Why in the culture wars, right, there's fights over children's books in schools. What they say, what they don't say. We're going to ban these and allow these. But it's because we know how powerful those stories can be for kids. My dad used to tell great stories about mutton Jeff, to chipmunks that would get my toys and go on adventures. And before I went to sleep, he would tell me stories about Mutt and Jeff. And I remember being on vacation in the mountains and Mutt and Jeff got in my toy car that I brought and they had some kind of fight with a bear. And the next day, he got my car and he touched the wheels. He was like, the wheels are still hot from Mutt and Jeff. Driving the car, you know. So uh, sometimes you just tell stories for fun just because it's a sweet thing to tell stories. Um, okay, so the Atlantic would say that it is a form of existential problem solving. And uh, humans are inclined to see narratives where there are none because it can afford meaning to our lives. A form of existential problem solving. So, um, You, instead of saying uh, existential problem solving, in their eyes, from a secular point of view, would say, you know, lightning struck my field and the field caught on fire. I don't know why that happened. So I'm going to assign, I'm going to tell a story about a God that sends fire. You know, I'm going to make up a story that makes this make sense. That's kind of what they're talking about. But it also is much more effective, just like you said, uh, that... You could say, hey, it's dangerous over there, be careful, right, when you're walking on the path. Or you could say, I was walking on the path the other day, and I was attacked by a lion, and it almost killed me, and here's the scar, right? That's much more effective if you want somebody to be careful on the path. So that's an example of existential problem-solving, how narratives are better than facts. The New York Times wrote an article about why do we tell stories, and they asked a bunch of experts why we tell stories, and they said these things. The gateway to truth-telling, that's pretty good, right? Um, A thought laboratory. I like this one. The universe is a story that exists from start to finish. That's actually basically true. I don't think this person necessarily coming from a Christian standpoint, but to say that the... Story of humanity is a story that God is telling. Our most endure, kind and enduring companion—that's where I would put like the Button Jeff stories, right? Uh, stories are life's inheritance. Stories are a way that we pass down knowledge. And and before uh, human beings wrote things, they told stories, and that's how one generation to the next how they remembered things. So, uh, the great thing about Jesus is they actually ask him, why do you tell parables? And he said, here's why I tell parables. So, we actually can look and see exactly what, um, exactly what he said. So, this comes from Matthew. Matthew 13, chapter 10, and it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> to quote Isaiah, uh, that's, he's quoting a prophecy from Isaiah where he says, He says, uh, with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their heart. and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your eyes for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And then if you skip down to the end of that chapter, he says in, chapter, in verse 34, All these things Jesus said to them, said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So, that's quite a claim to make and that kind of sets the stage. This is Jesus talking, and He's saying, I'm about to reveal things that have been hidden since the beginning of time. And I'm going to do it by telling stories. So, what's something amazing? What's a person that's alive? They have to be alive. What's somebody alive that you would just, if you could pick one person to talk to, who would you talk to? Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Other than me, thank you. Yeah, that's... Anybody? You could pick one person alive to talk to, who would you talk to? Pick your neighbor? Okay, <laughs> Okay, that's super sweet, I like that. You would pick her because of your relationship with her, right? What, what is somebody, if there was an amazing story you wanted to hear from somebody with first hand knowledge? Greg Laurie. Okay, I am about to sound dumb. Jesus I, okay, Jesus Revolution. Sorry I didn't know who that was. Okay. So you would like to hear directly from him, right? Because you hear about something and you want to hear from somebody that has direct first hand knowledge, right? How many of you all seen the UFO thing? It's all over the news. Does anybody else see this? Or am I crazy? UFOs are in the news again? Okay. What you want to hear, though, is not the person that says, I talked to somebody who saw this. You want to talk to the person that's like, I saw this thing myself, right? Well, that's what Jesus is. Like, Jesus knows everything, and He's saying, I'm about to reveal these secrets in the stories. So, this is an amazing opportunity. Um, And unfortunately, amazingly, the people He's talking to don't have ears to hear Him. So what does that mean? Ears to hear. So we're going to hear these stories, and uh, what does it mean to have ears to hear? Or to not have ears to hear? What does it mean to not have ears to hear? You don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that, right? Somebody says, I don't want to hear that. Great example, I'm about to get to it, that's a perfect example. What Wayne said, if you're a Fox News person, you're not gonna listen to CNN and vice versa, right? Or MSNBC, you have ears to hear one or the other, usually. Any of you with young kids ever thought, you know, my young child wants to play in, you know, the traffic and doesn't understand why that's not a good idea. They don't have ears to hear. And then if you have older kids, You have the same experience. Like they do not have ears to hear what you are saying. What do spouses say? Right? You are not listening to me. You are not hearing me. I do think it is a little bit different than not listening. Sometimes you listen to exactly what they are saying, but you are not hearing what they are saying. And many in the case of the the Pharisees they are absolutely listening to what Jesus is saying, but they are not hearing it at all. So, that is To me, the best example of this, and and everybody should understand this, is in the uh, 2016 election between Trump and and, and Hillary, now what y'all all all wanted me to talk about, right, is just to get deep into politics, okay? That's not what I'm going to do. My only point is, there are millions of people that love Hillary Clinton, and there are millions of people that love Donald Trump, and if I'm talking about the core base of their uh, constituents and they do not hear the other person. Sometimes they listen more closely. Like sometimes a Clinton supporter might listen to Trump's words more closely than uh, his own supporters. Sometimes a Trump supporter would listen to Clinton's words more closely than a Clinton supporter. But they don't hear them, right? Well, they just do not hear each other at all. Why do they not hear each other? They don't have an open spirit. They don't have an open spirit. Ideological filters, selective hearing. selective hearing. Where does all that start All that starts with an allegiance, right? It starts with an allegiance to one or the other. And um, you don't hear the other because you have an allegiance to one or, or vice versa. And ultimately what I think ears to hear comes down to is it's very similar to faith. When, when you say, you don't have ears to hear this person, or you do have ears to hear, it's very similar to saying you have faith. So if you have faith in Jesus, you have ears to hear. If my teenager has faith in me, if they believe me, and they have faith in me, if they have faith that I mean good for them, then they'll hear me. And when they don't hear me, really it's because they don't think I mean what's best for them, that I'm keeping them from something Right, and so our allegiances—what we have faith in—is what we—is what we hear. So we want to listen to these stories from Jesus. We want to have ears to hear. And and I'm—you know—it'd be strange to say somebody that can't hear, say, you know what, you need to try harder to hear better. Uh, my dad has a lot of trouble hearing. It would not help him for me to say, you know what, Dad, you're just not trying hard enough. Right? That's not the problem. So my question for you is, do you want to have ears to hear? Like we're going to hear things from these stories. There are things that I don't want to hear from Jesus' stories. I do not want to hear about the deceitfulness of riches. I'm not interested in that, right? But do I have ears to hear what Jesus is saying? Because Jesus is right. He's telling the truth. He knows the truth. He's telling us the truth. Do we have ears to hear uh, when he says those things? So, um, do we want to have ears to hear? And so, what he starts a lot of his parables with is this: he says, "The kingdom of heaven is like this." The kingdom of heaven is like this, and then he tells the story. And so, that's kind of the question: What is the kingdom of heaven like, and what do we, um, what do we perceive the kingdom of heaven to be? So, Jesus is going to say the kingdom of heaven is like. So again, he's revealing things that have been hidden from the beginning of time about the kingdom of heaven. So this is amazing, right? It's amazing that he did this. He could have told these stories a hundred different ways, and he told them the way he told them for, a very, for, for reasons that hopefully we'll try to scratch the surface of. So, what is the kingdom of heaven like? So, when I think about this, how I was raised or how I think about the kingdom of heaven a lot, I think about a picture that I love um, of Usain Bolt in a race, in in one of his races, I think it was in Brazil, and he smiled at the camera as he passed. Now, I don't imagine myself as Usain Bolt, but these two guys, they're two of the fastest people that have ever lived on earth, ever. And this guy in particular, I mean, the blood vessels are coming out of his face. And he's just not gonna catch you saying bolt. It's not happening, right? And how many of you feel like your faith is kind of like a New Year's resolution, it's kind of like a race against a standard that you'll never catch? And you just try and you get discouraged. You try and you get discouraged. And you just, you, you hold yourself, I mean, like I said, it's July the 2nd, and you're at Sunday school, so like, this is the, the bunch, right, that holds themselves to a very impossible standard. And when you fail to meet it, you get discouraged. So eventually, what do you want to do? You just throw your hands up and say, well, forget it. We've all been in a race. Even if you didn't run track or something, you were in a race in the first grade. Everybody in here has been in a race. You've all been in a race, somebody's faster than you. And the thing is, you know it before you even start. You look over, and you're like, I might be able to beat him or him. I definitely can't beat him and I can't beat him and I know from my own experience and limited experience just running as fa- like your brain is telling your legs to go as fast as they can go. and Your, every, your body is on fire. You're just running <laughs> and people are just going faster than you. You know? And is that what you think the kingdom of heaven is like? Because Jesus could have said, you know um, the three little pigs it's kind of like a parable, right? Except it's more like a fable. So why is it like a fable? It's like Narnia. Why is it like a fable? Pig's talking, a talk, uh, pigs talking, right? It's not set in the real world, right? It's talking animals. But you know, the three little pigs, if I'm remembering it right, you had basically two lazy pigs that built their houses out of straw and sticks, and you had the disciplined pig that built his house out of bricks. And then the freeloaders had to come with the uh, pig in the house with the bricks to be protected from the wolf. You know, Jesus could have told the parable of sower that way. How terrifying would that be? Right? Four men built a house. One of them was lazy, and he did this, and one of them was... But the one that worked harder than everybody else and built the best house, and he's the one that, you know... No, he told it as like plants growing out of the ground, which is the most passive thing ever, Right? You don't tell a tree to grow. You cultivate a tree to grow. So that is not what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is not like a race against Usain Bolt where you just somebody hands you a stopwatch and says when you can run a hundred yards in 9.6 seconds come back and see me, right? That's extremely discouraging and we get so discouraged because we think there's the standard of me being a, the perfect mom right or the perfect husband or the perfect employee whatever you know and we just fail so that's not what the faith is the faith is much more like running with Usain Bolt right and getting credit for Usain Bolt's and running as fast as you can but Usain Bolt is carrying the water right and you're running with him Um, but we do have a problem and I'm this morning I'm going to call it the t-shirt problem okay I'm about to tell a story about Anna now y'all know Anna it's like the sweetest person's ever lived, right? Literally. Um, I took no offense to this. I thought this was funny, okay? She told me I could tell this story but I had to make sure. I was like, Anna, believe me, nobody thinks anything but you're like the sweetest person ever. Okay. So, uh, RYM was in Colorado for senior high. My son Walker and my daughter Alice went. That's one of my favorite places, Rocky Mountain National Park. So very sweetly for Father's Day, uh, Walker bought me a hat and Alice bought me a shirt, right? So I'm feeling good about this. And I put my shirt on, and it's one of those really comfortable shirts. All T-shirts are comfortable, but some of them are just a little bit more comfortable, right? This is one of those really comfortable shirts. And I was kind of doing this, and I said, Anna, you know, I really like this shirt, but it's a little tight. And she says, in her sweet voice, she says, you know, it is a 2x. <laughs> Sometimes it's not the shirt. That's the problem. Right? It, the shirt is the size it's supposed to be, so maybe not sure what else we could change there. So and I laughed at that. That was not she's totally right. Um But you know the problem, it's not a race against Usain Bolt. But also, we have this problem where the shirt is not the problem. Like we're the problem. And so the reason we confess our sins every Sunday morning in the worship service is because we have a me problem. So how do we deal with those two things? Like It's not a race against this impossible standard where I should be discouraged all the time. It's also not like, but also at the same time, I'm the problem. It's not, we, we like to make everything somebody else's fault. Like, the shirt's too small, you know. My dad used to say his dress shirts were getting tight. And I thought the same, I've started thinking the same thing, and you know, the shirts are the same size. They're supposed to be. Something else is happening there, right? It's not the shirt. So how do we balance those two things? And I think what Jesus does in these stories is in all the parables, there's a, an encouragement, but there's also a warning. And uh, we need to hear the encouragement. Again, this crew that's coming to Sunday school July 4th, you hear the warnings. I wonder how often we hear the encouragements, though. I mean, Jesus did and said some things that are unbelievable, they're outrageous in terms of his grace to people. The fact that God would have that attitude is amazing, you know. And I just wonder if we hear that. And then sometimes we don't hear the warnings. We don't want to talk about the warnings. We don't want to hear the warnings uh, either. There are warnings that feel like they're kind of warnings to humanity in general, like a final judgment. And then there are warnings obviously to individuals. So how do we deal with that? And I'm gonna use some examples here to see if we can uh, understand that a little bit better. I'm gonna tell kind of my own stories. Not really my own stories. I'm going to talk about first, what is this picture from, if you can tell me what this picture is from. That's hard to see. That's Richard Gere. Pretty woman, right? So you know the story of pretty woman. Richard Gere, handsome rich guy, falls in love with Julia Roberts, who is the prostitute. What does she say? They have their, you know, every good story, you have to kind of all this lost moment. So they have this moment towards the end where they've kind of quote unquote broken up. What does she say to them? She says, I want what? I want the, anybody know this? I want the fairy tale, right? I want the fairy tale. And then at the end of the movie, she's standing on the fire escape with her red hair, and he comes with her, his roses in the limo, and he's like, I'm going to give you the fairy tale. Now, great movie. Uh, totally unrealistic, right? <laughs> right? Like this doesn't happen in real life. Um, but there are things that Jesus says and, and did that are as outrageous as the end of that movie. I mean, the, the, the prodigal son coming back to his father, he's done everything wrong, and the father embraces him throws him a party. Or the parable of the feasts uh, where the king invites people, they don't come, and he just says, go get people off the street and bring them in. Like that's ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous as that scene in that movie. Except that's what Jesus is saying, that is God's heart for his people. It is that ridiculous. In fact, the Old Testament, I think the book of Nahum, um, he says, I want you to marry a prostitute to know what it's like to be God. So, um, that is, you know, uh, when Jesus goes and sees the Samaritan woman by the well, what does he say to her? You're not married. You've had four husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. The fact that he would go sit with her is ridiculous. It's, it's as outrageous as this scene in this movie. But we live in the real world, unfortunately. <clears throat> we don't live in the pretty woman world. We live in the real world, and there actually was an Situation that happened in real life that's like the real life version that has the real life ending, right? So you'd say, Well, this is all nice, fairy tale world. I live in the real world where this happens. Do y'all remember this? Uh, you could probably name two people in this story, but not three. Who, who's the guy? Hugh Grant. And who's the supermodel wife? Elizabeth Hurley. Does anybody know her name? Do what? Friend from California. So she went by Divine Brown, but her actual name is Estella Marie Thompson. And if you remember this story, Hugh Grant is married to Elizabeth Hurley, Hugh Grant's movie star, And he's caught with a prostitute, who is Estella Marie Thompson, and is arrested. He goes on, I think, The Tonight Show, and just owns it and apologizes which was interesting. And and basically the that was kind of refreshing to have somebody just publicly say, "Well, this is what I did. I'm an idiot, you know. Please forgive me." But <clears throat> when Jesus tells us these stories, he's not in the fairy tale land, right? We think of it as this long time ago and these stories, this fake world. He's in the real world, okay? So when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. You understand like he's meeting with Divine Brown. He comes to Oxford and the first person he meets is not the community leaders. He meets her first. So that says something about God's character that's pretty unbelievable. I mean that's pretty incredible, right? To think that Think of how humiliating that was for her. Like Hugh Grant had to apologize to the world for even knowing her. And we have this strange thing that we do where we try to glamorize you know, what she's doing. There's nothing glamorous about that at all. It's totally the most dehumanizing thing in the world. And that's who Jesus, I mean, the woman at the well, the uh, woman who came and cleaned his feet, right, with her hair, you know, Rahab in the Old Testament, it is throughout the Bible. God reaching out to folks just like Estelle Marie Thompson in the real world. He brought that to the real world. So that is amazing, and that is the good news of the gospel. Now, um, that's why it's not a, ra- it's not a race against uh, some impossible standard. You know, there's a great clip on YouTube, and I've forgotten the pastor's name, is pastor in England, famous guy, and he tells a great story about the thief on the cross. Alistair great clip, I probably should play it, because uh, I'm going to butcher it, but he says, what did the thief on the cross say when he got to heaven, if he's being questioned by St. Peter? Well, t- what do you know about sanctification? He's like, what are you talking about? What do you know about, what's your favorite book in the Old Testament? Uh, What's the Old Testament? (laughs) What's your, describe what's your theology? I have no idea what theology even is. What are you doing here then? And he just says, that guy said I could come. Right? And That's what it is. And that's incredible. That frees us from all of this impossible guilt that we put on ourselves to be these perfect people that we can't be. So that's amazing, and that will come through, I think, in the stories of the parables. But then the question is, again, what do we do about this T-shirt? How do we take the warnings that God gives us? What's the posture of these warnings? So um, great story that my dad, my dad tells really good stories. So that picture, the old picture, is a picture of my dad and a man named Billy Woods who lives in Oxford. Some of y'all know, probably know him. He goes by Woodsy. And my dad goes by Stick. My dad's nickname is Stick. So my kids call him Stick. Everybody calls him Stick. So when he was 13, he, they both got Army Jeeps. This has been in the 1950s. And they would go out to the hunting camp by themselves. Right? Different world. And um, that's a picture of, you can't see my dad, them doing the same thing now. both that, In that picture, they're probably 80. And... Uh, So, been friends for a long time. Well, after the uh, ninth grade, my dad and Woodsy and a couple of other friends, without telling their parents, they got the idea that they were just going to move to the hunting camp for the summer. Now, there was a place, there's a place still there outside of Clarksdale. that's between the levee and the river. So there's some amazing hunting camps between the levee and the river, some of the best hunting land in the world. And there's a, there was a place called Ward Lake. It's also connected to a place called Bland Bio, I think is what it's called. And when, in the 1950s, it was just a hunting camp for regular folks, right? And then the rich people from Memphis came down. That, this is my childhood, right? Memphis is like north. The rich people from Memphis came and messed around with our hunting camp. So, uh, and Sometime in the 80s, it became this place where it's, you know, six figures to join, that kind of thing. There are several hunting camps like that uh, on the other side of the river, other side of the levee. But when my dad was a kid, this is where he went. It was like his playground. Amazing place. So they, a bunch of ninth graders, decide they are going to move to the hunting camp and spend all summer at the hunting camp. This is like summer camp with lots of guns and no counselors. Right. (laughs) Uh, And about day three, my granddad pulls up in his Oldsmobile and he gets out and he says, Woody, that's my dad's name, "Uh, I got you a job at the gas station. You start tomorrow at six. Now, my granddad was a very sweet man. Right. But he played football at Mississippi State in the 20s when they did not wear helmets. So this was not a argument that they had. Right, there was no. My dad actually told me this story, like reminded me of this about two weeks ago, and he said, you know, there wasn't a cross word about it, but it was because there were no cross words to be had. Like there wasn't a discussion about what he was going to be doing the next day at 6 a.m. Now, here's my question: That is not what my dad wanted to hear. He wanted to stay out there all summer. Was my granddad loving my dad when he did that? Why? Why was he loving my dad? Okay, under discipline instead of undisciplined, right? He's teaching him the value of hard work, right? He's only in the ninth grade. It's not like he never got to go to the hunting camp. He went to the hunting camp constantly in the summer. He's learning what it, to be a human being, which is you don't get to just goof off for three months. You have to actually work. So he's loving my dad by telling him something he doesn't want to hear. And then the question is, does my dad have ears to hear what he's saying? Now at the time, he may or may not have, but certainly now he understands why he would do that, right? My dad would not have let me go uh, spend a summer at the hunting camp. It's funny to me, though, no phones, right? I mean, you're lucky to have a phone in your house. You definitely did not have a phone at the hunting camp. Guns everywhere. You're just out there by yourself. Just a different world. You know, we're scared to let our kids walk out the front door. Um, So the warnings that we hear in the parables, if we're going to have ears to hear those warnings, we need to hear them with that in mind. Right? God loves us. He means well for us. Uh, to me this is, a, this is described well in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is where you have the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it lists, you know, Moses, Abraham. It actually lists Rahab, which is kind of interesting. Rahab the prostitute. And it, it, it defines faith a couple of different times. But one of the things it says, it says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And when I hear that, to me, what that's saying is, like a parent, you believe in your parent, and you trust that they, they actually mean good for you. So, If you believe that God exists, and you believe that he rewards those who seek him, then you'll have ears to hear what he has to say. And you'll hear the encouragements, but you'll also hear the warnings. So that's the posture that we should have. And if you read the rest of that chapter, um, it basically says most of these folks did not get what they were promised. In fact, many of them were killed, they were sawn in two, they were eaten by animals, and that what God is revealing to us is actually better than what God revealed to Abraham, Moses, you know. So when we get to read these stories, we're reading something and hearing something that's actually better than what they heard. And so uh, that's the posture in which we should take it. We believe in God. We, be- we believe that God means good for us. Even when he says, be careful with riches, you know, again. That's a tough one to hear. Next week we'll talk about the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. I don't really want to hear a lot about that, you know. And so do I hear that in the sense that God loves me and I believe in Him and He means good for me? You know, that's the way we want to hear that. So we're going to talk about the parable of the sower next week. We're going to talk about Errol is then going to talk about the lost sheep and the lost son and the lost coin. That's the prodigal son. And then we'll talk about the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value. We'll talk about the parable of the two sons. And we'll talk about, finally, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So that's what we're going to do in the next few weeks. Any thoughts or comments or questions before we finish up here? Okay, thank you guys again. Pat yourself on the back for coming to Sunday School on July the 4th. I feel like, to me, I don't know what y'all are like. Days like today... It's, it might as well be 15 degrees outside like i just do not want to go outside at all i walk to the mailbox and i feel like i'm walked through a sauna so thank you guys for coming i'm gonna pray for us and we'll get ready for a worship start father in heaven we thank you for loving us we thank you for the incredible way that you love uh wayward people like us and um I pray that we would see that. We would see just how incredible it is that you would reach out to um, folks like prostitutes that are outcasts and that you would love them. And that that would be a great encouragement to us. Also help us to hear your warnings as we would hear from a loving father and not from a taskmaster uh, who hates us. And I just pray that we would see that in your parables and ask for your blessing on our worship that it would be pleasing to you as we get ready to worship here in a few minutes. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.